Tonight, we're going to continue our eight-week series titled, What We Believe. Uh, hearing these sermons and affirming belief in the doctrines that they cover is going to be one of the qualifications for membership here at Love City Church. Uh, we took a good portion of our time together last week to discuss why it is we believe membership is biblical. Um, I don't have time to go through all that again this week. However, that sermon is available online, mylovecitychurch.org. You can find the sermon from last week, which also, if you missed last week, you'll need to catch that up uh, as far as hearing all of these if you are interested in being a member here. So we do believe membership is biblical. Covered it fairly extensively last week, so you can check that out online. Um, Tonight, we are going to establish what it is we believe about the Bible. Uh, Before we do that, we should quickly review our approach to doctrine here so that we all kind of know that we're coming from the same place and angle. Um, We here at Love City, we use the two-handed or open and close-handed approach to doctrine, okay? If you've heard this before and this is boring, forgive me. If not, it's, uh, this is really important as you approach essential doctrines to understand how to, how to come at it uh, and really to avoid kind of disunity. Um, so we have open-hand and closed-hand topics, right? So closed-hand topics or closed-hand doctrines, these are the ones that are of the utmost importance and must be contended for. Um, the reality is, is that not all truths in the Scripture are equally clear. They are equally true, but they're not all equally clear. Uh, also, the Scriptures tell us it's, we, we look through a, a glass dimly. It's almost like looking, looking at your reflection in a mirror that's been fogged up when you're showering. You know, it's like a little bit hazy. I can't totally tell what's going on there. Even Peter said, man, sometimes when he would read the writings of Paul, he said, don't feel bad. Sometimes I don't understand what the brother's talking about either, right? So some things are hard to understand. Some of it just comes down to the fact that we're dealing with the thoughts and intentions of an infinite God, right? And we are finite people with finite minds trying to figure him out, right? So um, there are some things that are just abundantly clear, some things that are less so, right? So closed-hand topics are the ones that are very clear, um, and, and they're essential and foundational to the Christian faith. So these are ones that we would contend for. These are ones that we would divide over. So, for example, like what we believe about the Scriptures, what we're going to go over tonight, that's a big deal. Believing the Scriptures, having an orthodox view of what the Scriptures are uh, is essential, and that's a closed-hand topic for us. Um, the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, right? Jesus is the only way to heaven. We're not backing down from that. It doesn't matter how loud everyone else screams that there should be other ways. That's not fair. Bottom line, Jesus is the only way. He made it plain. And so we're going to stand and hold that standard. Um, The virgin birth, perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of King Jesus. Everything surrounding Jesus, that's oftentimes called uh, Christology, understanding Christ, who he is, what he did. That's a closed-hand topic for us. The person and work of Jesus. The Trinitarian nature of God. The fact that we were created by God. That's what we covered last week. Um, We do not believe that lightning struck ooze, and out of that came a single-celled amoeba that somehow developed into a polywog, did a backflip on land, and enough time passed that we get the uh, incredible biological diversity we have on this planet. We believe God made us. Now, we talked about last week, there's some room for how and when. We, we leave room for interpretation there, but the bottom line is God made us. We were created by God. Uh, so those are closed examples of closed-hand topics for us. Probably not all of them, but many of them. Um, open-hand topics are ones that we can discuss, debate, and dialogue about, but we need not divide over. 
These are subjects that mature Christians should be able to differ on, but still love each other and serve Jesus together. Okay, so I'll give you a couple examples of those. Uh, where, when, and how the gifts of the Spirit operate, right? Different people have some different views about that. We believe that's open-handed. Somebody could believe different about certain parts of that and still be a faithful Christian and be somebody that I could link arms with to preach the gospel with and be on mission with, okay? Um, Mode of dress for gatherings, right? At some churches, there's a certain expectation that you're dressed a certain way when you get there. What we care about here at Love City is what the Bible makes clear. We, you know, you got to be modest. You don't want to take attention away from Jesus by your great curves, ladies, or your rippling muscles, men, right? So we want to be modest. Um, we want to dress in such a way as not to draw attention to ourselves. Um, but other than that, the only other scriptures we find about dress in the Bible is pretty much Jesus making fun of the Pharisees for thinking that they're too awesome and showing it by the way they dress, okay? Um, Ministry style, music style, the order of the service, kind of liturgical flow. These are things the Bible leaves room for interpretation on uh, and various other secondary matters that the Bible leaves room for uh, contextual interpretation on. So there are open hand and closed hand topics, okay? So make sure, but here's here's the thing. You know people, right? Oftentimes what we focus on most are the things that matter the least, we make the biggest deals out of the littlest deals, you know, mountains out of molehills, so to speak. Um, we should never divide with other faithful Christians. We should never divide with other faithful Christians. The cause of the gospel and the goal of seeing as many people as possible love and serve Jesus are way too important to let discord and disunity drive a wedge between us. We should never divide with faithful Christians. People that believe Jesus is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died in our place, that they believe the scriptures are the inspired word of God. People that are Christians, they're, they're, they're faithful, they're within orthodoxy. I don't care what they wear to church. I don't care how long their service is. I don't care about a bunch of other stuff that comes down to preference and context. If they got the gospel and, and they understand what the mission of God is and what he's called us to do, what is of the utmost importance, then I'm willing to be their friend and everybody else should be too. Okay? Uh, Augustine has this quote, St. Augustine, um, and I think it's said well. He says, In necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity. St. Augustine's view on the subject, and uh, generally I trust what he has to say, so I think that's a good quote. Um, we live in a day where the truth of the scriptures have never been more violently attacked or desperately needed. It's imperative for Christians to know what the scriptures teach about themselves. Is the Bible one of many holy books that contains the outdated wisdom of ancient philosophers? Is that what the scriptures, that's what some people would pose today the scriptures are. The Bible is one of many holy books and it's a bunch of archaic wisdom that doesn't really apply anymore. Is it the most clever, prolific, and pervasive collection of lies ever told? Some would posit that. Some would propose that the scriptures are nothing more than the most elaborate lie that any group of men has ever been able to come up with. And it's prolific and pervasive because it's lived this long, and it's affected and influenced culture pretty much as long as we've had culture, right? So uh, if it is a lie, then it is a big one. Or is it the very words of the infinite, perfect, and loving God that it claims to be? What you believe about this 
makes the rest of this series on the essential, essential doctrines of the Christian faith of either the utmost importance or of no importance at all. Do you understand why that's true? What you believe about this determines whether or not any of these other doctrines matter. Because if you believe that this book is just one of many holy books, if it's got some wisdom that applies sometimes, or you believe that it's, it's mostly poetic and, and it's just it's one of many options you could pick as a way to kind of live your life or get some decent moral advice from, then that will totally undercut every other of the rest of these essential doctrines and we may as well not discuss them. However, that's not what we believe about the Bible. We believe it is the very inspired Word of God. The Scriptures are the way that God has chosen to speak to and instruct us, His people. To refute the Scriptures is to refute the sovereign God who brought them into being. You cannot have a special relationship with God that disregards the commands and promises of the Bible. Anybody ever heard that before? Well, me and God got our own thing going. I mean, if you talk to people much and you, you come and you try to bring them the picture that the Bible paints of the gospel and Jesus as Lord, and then people understand the consequences and ramifications of that fact, oftentimes the escape hatch they'll use is, well, you know, don't judge me. Me, me and Jesus have our own thing. Like, somehow God wrote in a special clause for them that they, they get off. Everyone else has to kind of abide by the word, but I'm, you know, I'm special. That's not the way it works. Uh, the Bible is God's revelation to us, and it is a precious gift and treasure. That's how we should look at it. That's how we should regard it. The word Bible comes from the Greek word for book. Uh, the word scripture literally means writing, okay? Not that that's real profound, but some of you may have been wondering, where did the word Bible come from? Well, there you go. Um, we're going to spend our time tonight hitting the highlights of what we believe about the scriptures, uh, and why we believe those things. This is a, a huge subject. This is a multifaceted subject. My hope tonight is to cause a stirring in your soul, an appetite uh, to study further the doctrines and ideas and the evidences that we're going to cover here tonight. Because uh, this is in no way going to be an exhaustive commentary on the subject of the scriptures, what they are, why it's trustworthy to believe them, uh, why it's not foolish to believe that this is the very word of God. There, there, it's more than just the fact that the scriptures say that about themselves. And we're going to cover some of that tonight. However, um, really I'm hoping to just whet your appetite a little bit and uh, that you'll do some study on your own as well. Uh, there are three words that faithful Christians normally use to describe what we believe about the scriptures. Um, we're going to add a fourth word. Here's what we believe, these four words about the Bible. That it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is authoritative, and also the fourth, that it's finished. And we're going to break those words down. If you don't know what some of those words mean, uh, don't break out in more of a sweat than you may already be because of the humidity and or temperature in the room. Uh, we're going to break it down and make it easy, okay? Um, so we'll take each word in turn, explain what it means, and why we believe it. Okay, so um, first of all, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3.16. This is where we'll start tonight, from the Word, seeing what it is the Word declares about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, we're going to read what the Scriptures say about the Scriptures. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, the Bible is not one book. It's 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And we believe that both the Old and New Testament are the inspired word of God. We believe that God supernaturally enabled the writers of Scripture to receive and communicate all we needed to know about him for his glory and for our salvation. That's what we believe. So when, when we're seeing here that uh, in 2 Timothy verse 3.16 it's saying all Scripture, I just want to make sure you understand I'm making a distinction we don't just mean the New Testament, we mean the Old Testament as well. The whole thing, all 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, we believe are the inspired words of our holy sovereign God, okay? That changes the game. I mean, that is the foundation for the entirety of this study. That's the main point we're going to make. The Bible is the words of God. That's the, that's the launch pad. Now, we're gonna, we'll kind of build from there, but that's the bottom line. Um, we affirm a belief known as verbal plenary inspiration, okay? Now, don't jump off the wagon on me and don't get freaked out. This is important, and, and I know some of you are not real, you know, super excited about doctrine or, or you know, stuff like that. Just, at the end of the day, God gives some people to just know that Jesus loves them and go tell other people about it, and that's awesome, and you should rock that gift. Some of you get super excited when words with lots of syllables start happening, Either way, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on on that, this we need to know. None of the rest of what we are or what we believe as Christians matters if we don't believe that these scriptures are what they claim to be. It all becomes a wash, and I promise you, much of what is going on today in, in the political landscape, what's going on in our culture, is an attack on that very fact and it's masked as many other issues, it's masked as many other agendas, ultimately what the enemy wants to do is to undercut the authority of the scripture, to convince people it's no longer relevant, that its wisdom was for another time, and that it is not actually the words of our perfect sovereign creator God, but it is just the musings of sages of old. That is what the attempt is from the enemy, because if you can take the scriptures out, you take people away from knowing the true God who is their author. That's part of the scheme, and that's why this matters. That's why we have to draw a line in the sand and say, we believe that these are the words of God. And so I'm going to break down for you what verbal plenary inspiration means, okay? It's much less scary than it sounds. Now, it's much more important for you to know what it means than to, than to remember the exact wording that I'm using. However, both would be helpful because um, this, this is a fairly big deal, okay? So... The first word in verbal plenary inspiration, verbal, right? So we believe the very words of the scriptures are important and they were chosen by God. So every word does matter, right? That's why in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus said that not the smallest letter or stroke of the law is going to pass away. And here's the wonder of this, that God translated the infinite depth, depth of his thoughts into words so that we could understand them and that those authors could write them. Somehow God took his infinite knowledge and wisdom and turned it, he, got, he was able to make it into language so that we could understand that he can, exp I mean, he's, he is the best teacher ever. I mean, anybody ever had a teacher that just like totally talked over your head 
And it was like more about making sure everybody knew that they were really good at the subject that they teach rather than teaching somebody something. I, I had teachers like that. And, you know, you just stand there and like your eyes start to glaze over, right? Little, little drool collects in the corner of your mouth. It's like, I'm getting nothing from this, right? Um, God isn't like that. If, if what it takes is baby talk, God will get down on his knees and baby talk to us. And oftentimes it is, right? Let's just be honest. God has to make it real simple, real plain, because we're talking about infinite, omniscient, never began, always was God, creator God, trying to explain him and what he thinks to you and me. <laughs> Woo, what a task, right? But he was up to it and he's done it. And he's done it in these beautiful scriptures. That's why these scriptures matter. That's why we love the Bible. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we hold strong and stand firm where the Bible holds strong and stands firm. Because it represents the very character, nature, intent, and motives of the God that made us. That's why it's a big deal. And that's why it's exciting. Even though, even though this may be words you're not familiar with, man, this, us having this discussion here tonight, do you understand Churches, you're not supposed to do this in 2013. You're not supposed to potentially bore people. Like this, this goes against everything that everyone tells you that's supposedly a guru on church planning right now in this day and age. I should be, first of all, fireworks should have gone off at least three times in this sermon already just to make sure that you're pumped and entertained, right? I should be saying a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, affirming you and your personality and how great you are, as opposed to trying to draw you into caring about what the scriptures are and what God says about them, what he cares about, what he thinks about, even if it puts you in a place where you feel conviction and you're brought to repentance. I'm not supposed to say sin in 2013. Do you, the, the, the culture around you tells you, you're great, you're the best, you deserve it, you just keep on being you. But we can't do that. We have to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth because the truth is the most loving thing that could ever be told. If I love you, I will tell you the truth. If I love you, I will challenge you. If I love you, I will push you. If I love you, I will stretch you today to understand why we believe that these scriptures are God's word. Why it is that we should fashion every facet of our lives to be molded into the image that this Bible paints. If I love you, I'll stretch you and I'll push you to do that even if it makes you uncomfortable. You're welcome. Okay. Verbal plenary inspiration. Are we more excited about that now? Off we go. Okay? Verbal. We believe that the very words of the scriptures are important. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, right, the smallest letter of stroke will not pass away. And it's amazing that God could translate his infinite depth, his thoughts, his wisdom into words we can understand. Plenary, okay, simply means the whole Bible. The words matter, plenary means the whole Bible, right? So we don't pick and choose what we will accept or deny. We cannot come to the scriptures pridefully subjecting them to trial by our supreme intellect. That's not the way we come to the scriptures. Making them defend themselves as if they must answer to us. That's not how it works. God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours he is eternal, infinite, and all-knowing, and he is the very source of all wisdom and all knowledge. And so we believe every single word of the scriptures. We don't get to go through and cut stuff out that we don't like or just simply ignore it. In trying to think of an example of this, I, I thought how ridiculous it would be if my two-year-old Lucy, uh, if she was to approach me and say, 
hey, pops, um, here's the deal. I'm two now. So, you know, I've evolved past your archaic and outdated requirements and rules, you know, about staying out of the street and not making mixed drinks out of all the chemicals under the kitchen sink. I've, I've, I'm past that now. Um, I've kind of, I've, I've gone past you a little bit. You're, you're a little too fundamental, a little too old school. Um, so I'm just going to disregard those instructions, right? I mean, this is, we're laughing, right? Because that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, not only would we have to finish the conversation after her rear end quit feeling like she sat on a fire ant hill, right? Like we'd have to pause and then come back for the lesson because, yeah, that's not going to go down. Um, because I love her, right? Love her too much to let her act like that. But, you know, we do that and then it'd be like her saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to you about, you know, not making mixed drinks out of, out of all the cleaners and I'm just going to play in the street all the time. But don't worry, Dad. Don't worry. I, I still like all the stuff about you loving me and taking care of me. You know, I'm, I'm still going to believe all that. I'm still going to roll with all that. But, you know, the, this other stuff that kind of restricts me or makes me do stuff I don't want to do or stops me from doing stuff I do want to do, you know, pish posh to that. <laughs> it's not going to go down. That's silly, isn't it? That's real, real it's, it's just a ridiculous thought to even think of that happening, and yet somehow we, in the position of the two-year-old, think we get to come to God like that. Because here's the reality. The difference between knowledge and wisdom between my two-year-old and I is great. It's very large. I, I, I know much more what is better for her and what is best for her than she does. I have much more information to work with, been around a lot longer, have a more developed brain, mind, and all the experience to go with it. That is why what I say to her goes, Right? other than the fact that God entrusted her to my care. So the gap between her and I is large when it comes to knowledge and wisdom. The gap between me and the God that made me is infinitely larger. And so it is ridiculous times infinity for me to come to God or come to the scriptures and suppose that I'm going to subject it to my rigorous standards of intellect. Or I'm going to Pick and choose. Well, I get, I, I can see why you'd say that to me, God. I don't understand why you'd say that right there, so I'm going to disregard that or just ignore that as if somehow <laughs> God's not proved himself and God's not worthy to just be worshipped and obeyed because he is. To explain further what we mean by inspired, let's turn together to Second Peter, and we're going to... Um, be in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 19. Shouldn't be too far. Uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 19. We believe that God chose to express himself by inspiring authors that he chose to write his words so that we may know him. John 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. To get to know the scriptures is to get to know King Jesus himself. Let's read 2 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 19 together. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit 
spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what we're talking about. And it's, here's what's amazing about it. Do you guys understand? God can absolutely do whatever he wants. And so he could have written all of these scriptures on a mountainside with his finger if he wanted to, right? He could have done it, he could have done it any way he wanted. The, the, the possibilities are endless. However, God used the mouths and hands of men to communicate his truth. And this seems like a pattern with him. He's, he's kind of like a, a good father training his kids to be a part of a family business. And he allows his kids to take part in his plans and his purposes. I mean, God could, God could very well not have called us to be the ambassadors of the gospel. He could very well have not entrusted us with the most important message that will ever be given to anybody. He, surely he could have found someone on many occasions more trustworthy. Right? Anybody but me? <laughs> yeah. Angels, bears, anybody probably on an average day is more trustworthy than me because I am prone to be selfish. I am prone to be discontent. I am prone to be prideful and I am prone to be distracted from what really matters, which is eternity. And whether or not people have come to understand the beauty of the gospel. I'm prone to be entangled, like Paul told me not to, in the issues of life. However, God saw fit to overlook all that to call us to rise above those things, to equip us to do it by his grace and by his Holy Spirit. He lets us partake in what it is he's doing in the world and, and his eternal plans. For some reason, we are a privileged race. We're a privileged, we're a privileged part of creation. He made us as his children. Man, and knew how much trouble we'd be. That's the crazy part. Perfect foreknowledge. God exists outside of time before he made us, knew how wretched we'd be, knew how rebellious you'd be, and most amazingly knew how rebellious I'd be, and yet still made us all. And not only that, lets us partake in what it is he's doing. Lets us partake in his reconciling work in the world. Lets us partake in his eternal plan for his glory. Sure, and I've heard people say that. Well, if God wanted everyone to believe the scriptures, well, why didn't he just ride it on a mountain or, you know, do crop circles like the aliens. He wanted his kids to be involved. I'm grateful. I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful. Is there any evidence that the Bible is inspired, that it is the words of God and not just men other than the Bible itself? <clears throat> it's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors with wildly varying backgrounds, written over the span of 1,500 years, three continents, three languages. It tells one story. Try getting four people in a room and say, okay, we're just, we're just going to come up with a story here. You know, you have the first part, second, third, fourth. Separate, write your part, come together. Let's see what you got. It could be the four best friends in the world, right? You're still going to have a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. But here what we have is 40 authors ranging from kings to fishermen, prophets, poets, all different walks of life over a span of 1,500 years written in three different languages. And yet we have Genesis to Revelation, one story. We have the story of God creating mankind, 
mankind rebelling, falling away from its original intent, falling away from reconciled relationship to the God that made them. And then most of the rest of the story is about God's beautiful plan of redemption to bring us back to him. Genesis to Revelation, we've got one story. We've got congruence and continuity through all of the scriptures. I guess you can go with your classic escape hatch. Well, it could be coincidence. Or it's all engineered. That's impossible when there's so many prophecies looking into the future that are fulfilled. Over and over and over and over and over again, it gets to the point where the probabilities and just the simple math, you start to be the fool to claim coincidence. At a certain point, coincidence doesn't work anymore as an escape hatch from what the Bible has said will happen and has come to pass. Just the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled himself, the probabilities of that alone are so staggering that it looks foolish to claim it's anything other than the hand of a sovereign God. The way the Bible came together is one one evidence of the fact that it couldn't no group of guys would have been smart enough to get together and pull that off it's clear that God's hand was guiding his word and its compilation throughout history so that we could have it for our good and his glory and I'm really grateful for it when you when you research in history what it's taken for you to have that bible in your hand and the five that are sitting at home you, you all of a sudden appreciate it more men that burned at the stake to take the thing from language that was that where only the, the elite could read it to a language where you and I could have it. Men that were so convinced that you needed to be able to read the very words of God yourself that they gave their life so that it could be translated. All of a sudden, this, you know, this become, it should be less of a paperweight or, or a, a coffee table ornament. It should be something that is a treasure that we clutch cl- close to us and, and refuse to let go of. Understanding how much blood, other than the precious blood of Christ himself, it cost for you to have this today. It's a lot. I love my Bible. You guys know how I am about the word love. I love my Bible. I love it. I'd die for this word. I'd die to defend it. It's proved true to me. All this other stuff I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you other evidences, la da 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 it's all great. You should know it. You should care about it at the end of the day. What's happened in your heart, man? How many people do you know? Have you watched their life transform? And there's people in this room that chalk it up to positive reinforcement all you want. I've watched them go from death to life. I've watched them go from wretch, selfish and prideful to somebody that is humble and full of God's love and spending their life and exerting their existence for God's glory and the good of others. At some point, again, it becomes ridiculous to just explain it away. There is no explanation other than God is who he says he is. And this word is what he says it is. It's his thoughts, it's his motives, it's his instructions and his promises to us. And I'm really grateful for it. Aside from the Bibles coming together, again and again, archaeologists have been able to use the descriptions in the scriptures to find ancient cities and other sites Um, You could take Jericho, for example. For a long time, Jericho seemed to be a ding against the Bible's accuracy because the best archaeological evidence we had for a long time suggested that Jericho was uninhabited from 1600 B.C. to about 1250 B.C. Now, everyone understands how 
BC AD works, right? So if you're in BC, you're counting up to zero, right? So 1600, right, was further back than 1250. Here's, here was the problem with that. The Bible said the walls fell in 1440, right? So if archaeologists widely agreed from 1600 to 1250, Jericho was an uninhabited city, how is it the Bible comes along and says in 1440 the walls fell? Doesn't seem to line up, right? Until another part of the site began to be dug and they found a thick layer of ash. Three different dating methods were used to figure out a burn date on that. It had there all different components in that ash, things that were included in it. Anybody want to take a guess what date came up? 1440. Again and again and again and again, the Bible will be proved true. And I understand there's pundits all over the place, haters and detractors, those that would try to defame Christ. I understand that YouTube is full of those that are puffed up thinking that they've got the answer, the thing that's going to finally undo the scriptures as if brilliant men for years have not exerted their prideful efforts to undo what it is God has done in these. It will not happen because it is true. They can spew falsehoods, they can spew lies, they can do whatever they want, exerting as much selfish, uh, hateful speech towards God and his word and his character as they would like. As we discussed last week, the motive for that is always pride. Mankind, ever since Adam and Eve, has had for some reason this prideful desire not only to be like God, but to be their own God, to rule themselves. It's a sinful desire. God is our king. He made us. We were purchased by the blood of Christ. I'm grateful for that. There are many other evidences that we could talk about, and that's part of, you know, I talk to you about Jericho and that because that's one of many. And so I, I encourage you, dear ones, push Push beyond the temptation to be slothful when it comes to this and spend time. There's several books. Come and talk to me. Uh, there's, I'm sure uh, Andrew as well would have many suggestions. Adam um, and many, many other guys here that are, that are students that really have, have taken the time to figure out not just that they believe but why they believe. That's important. You're going to be asked that question more often as time goes by. It's not going to be just left alone at, well, I'm a Christian because I was born into a family and they were Christians. Or I started to go into church and they seemed pretty nice. You're going to be challenged on why you believe these scriptures are actually the inspired word of God. And I'm not saying you should spend your life in debates with people that hate the Lord. If they hate the Lord, look, man, at the end of the day, it's going to be us living in unity together and us loving them beyond their hatred. Ultimately, that's going to win the day. But we need to be able to have intelligent conversations about why it is we believe the Bible is true. Why it is we believe the Bible is God's word. It is the very foundation of everything else we say we believe. We have no reason. People, people try to go there with me, right? The whole, listen, I'm cool with God, but you, you know, I don't believe the Bible. What are you talking about? You have no way whatsoever to know anything about God at all if you don't have the scriptures. Like, where are you from, man? You don't get to just make stuff up and decide that, you know, your whole idea of God came from these scriptures. Now, you've taken it, twisted it, perverted it, and made it your own little special, you know, demonic idol. 
oh, did he say that? Yep. Because it's not the real Jesus. It's not the God of the Scriptures. And any other God is not God. So, we covered the word inspired first. Say, so we're talking about the fact that we believe the, the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, it's without errors, that it's authoritative, and also that it's finished. We covered the word inspired first because it kind of follows logically that if the Bible is the very words of God, then it is going to be inerrant. It's going to be without error, right? And it is going to be authoritative. And so that's, we spend the most time on inspired and we talked about that first. So we will now build from there. Another question that could be asked fairly, um, God's not scared of this question and neither should we be. Uh, does the Bible have errors? And this question can mean two different things when people ask it. Okay, so let's talk about that. What somebody could mean in asking, does the Bible have errors, is do the original writings have errors, either factually or otherwise? The original writings, the autographer, the original point where God inspired that writer to put Scripture into words, we would say no. No, they are not. Because they are inspired. The originals are not. So the whole earth flooded, right? Yeah, I believe that. So Jonah survived three days in the belly of some type of fish, right? Yeah, I believe that. I do believe that. And here's the thing. You could say, yeah, but look at every species in the world right now. There's no species of seafaring creature anywhere that you're going to find that a man could survive in its belly for three days. Okay, here's what you are totally missing, dear friend. God is not bound by the laws he created. Do you understand that? God's not bound by gravity, nothing. Thermodynamics, nothing. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. God could have, if he so chose, created a special fish specifically for the task, dropped it in the ocean, and it had one purpose in its whole life, to swallow Jonah, go spit him up in Nineveh so he could obey what God told him to do. And that fish could have rolled over and died from then on. I don't know. It could have been a two-bedroom luxury condo inside the fish. God could have done whatever he wanted. Don't talk to me about, oh, well, I looked at all the whale species, and they have baleen, and they eat plankton, and there's no way. But Are you serious? We're talking about the God that spoke and created everything. And you're worried about what kind of fish it might have been to swallow Jonah? That's not even the point of the story. The point of the story is when God tells you to do something, you better do it. Because ultimately, you're going to do it. And it's better to do it his way first. People get all hung up on the fish, man. What type of fish? Was it a whale? I don't know. Was it like Free Willy? Wow, child of the 90s there, huh? Who knows what Free Willy is? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Rest of you are babies. All right. I guess everyone, because there was like 10 of them, right? So. I saw Free Willy 8. <laughs> oh, wow. How'd that make it in here? All right. Praise God. Um, so, we believe that the, the, the words of Scripture are inspired. I do believe that the whole world flooded. Absolutely. I believe Jonah survived three days in a fish. And all the other stuff that's supernatural, that God did, miracles, all the stuff that defies... Uh, what science tells us. Look, man, science done right is figuring out how God does stuff. Flat out. Okay? Um, so 
that sometimes that's what people are mean. The second thing people can mean when they say, uh, "Does the Bible have errors?" is what they mean is what they're trying to say is, "Does the Bible we read today reflect the original accurately?" This is again a fair question. You know, motive matters. If if somebody's you know saying this through clenched teeth, hoping that they've finally struck the death blow to the scriptures and the God who wrote them, you know, not good, right? Uh, but it's a fair question and something that we should be able to deal with and not be scared of. So does the Bible that we read today reflect the originals accurately? The answer is yes. If you have a good word-for-word translation, uh, you can be confident that what you're reading today is, is the same as the original. Um, there is a science of textual criticism, okay? It's, it's the science of figuring things out. Is what we have here, is it like the original? Is it is it match up to what was written originally? Uh, textual criticism has been applied to the scriptures rigorously, and the scriptures destroy any other book of antiquity and its ability to pass these tests. Okay? Um, we have 14,000 copies of the New Testament written no later than 100 years after the original books, right? So, one of the things that people will look at in trying to figure out is what we have close to the original, is they'll see what copies we have, how long was it from the original that they were written. How many do we have that line up the same? We have 14,000. Things like Homer, things like Plato, you've got 10 copies at best. And you don't see people running around saying, get that out of schools, we've only got 10 copies, it's probably not the original, right? But people will jump on that pony and ride it all the way to town when it comes to the scriptures because they're hoping what they found is a way out of answering to the God that made them. Sorry. Pride loses again. There are slight variations in sentence structure and spelling that results from the copies being handwritten, but none of these affect significant doctrines whatsoever. So in those 14,000 copies, you may find where a letter is switched, a word is misspelled, um, you know, a, a sentence is structured in a different way, but it does not in any way affect anything significant, uh, and it has to do with the fact that the way things were copied then, you didn't have the printing press. Really committed guys sat and hand-copied stuff. And they were really committed to getting it right. And so that's why you see very few errors. Um, Now, that's that's the New Testament. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had were the Masoretic texts, and they were from around 900 A.D. So that's that's a long time after they were written, right? Because the Old Testament is written, you know, even long before Jesus came, right? So that was a long span of time. However, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s, um, they're a thousand years older than the Masoretic texts, right? So that gets us a lot closer to that original time. The other thing that you see, which is really cool, is um, comparing the Dead Sea Scrolls with those texts that we had. You know, for, for a long time, the Old Testament was kind of in the same spot as Plato and, and Homer and these other guys. Like, we didn't have a lot to go on to know if what we had was close to the original the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, absolutely affirmed and confirmed that what we have is very close to the original. You go to key texts like Isaiah 53, um, you, you, see, you see that it, it matches up, and that's incredible. I mean, you're talking a thousand years, man. A thousand years, and that shows it's not just that men were committed, it's that God himself was stewarding his word throughout history because he had intents and purposes for it. There, I mean, the, the very fact that Things, how were the Dead Sea Scrolls in there written on papyrus, right? 
how, I don't care how dry and arid it is. God was in that, man. That that stuff wasn't powder. God was in that. And people say stuff like, well, I wish God would just do something to show us he's really there. How about 2,000-year-old paper not disintegrating? And then some shepherd kid happens to chuck a rock in the right cave and hear a clay pot break. And, oh, look, here's a treasure trove of 2,000-year-old documents that confirms that what we've had all along matches the Old Testament. Quinky-dink again, eh? Okay. These facts together and many others should give us great confidence that God has sovereignly preserved his word throughout time. God has done that. He's done that for us. He's done that for his glory. Okay? Um, What about other books, right? Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, these other supposedly Gnostic or lost Gospels. Why were these things not included? Why are we confident that those are not scriptures? Uh, Ultimately, we believe that God himself guided the process of the canonization of scripture. I don't know if everyone's familiar with that. So the 66 books of the Bible are... We call that the canon of Scripture. These are the books that have been determined to be the inspired Word of God. There were others that some people put forth suggesting that they would be. Again, however, the early church subjected all of these books to rigorous standards, some of which we're going to go over here. Um, The early church got together in the 4th century. They subjected all the books we have as Scripture today to various requirements to be considered whether or not they would be Scripture. Uh, the New Testament canon specifically, you need to hear this and you need to understand that the, the New Testament canon was not the church making these books scripture, but simply recognizing that they were. Do you understand that that's an important distinction? The church didn't get together in the fourth century and say, we need to canonize something. Let's, let's figure out which books we want to be God's word and the rest, let's get them out of here. What they did is come together and officially recognize and, and stand together and say, these are the books that we know, based on the requirements that we're putting them through, that these are the very inspired words of God, that these are <clears throat> the words that God wanted us to have to know his promises and his commands. Um, for example, why did the four Gospels make a name of the Gospel of Thomas and Philip did not? Okay, I'll give you two reasons. There's more. First of all, is apostolic or eyewitness authorship. Okay, if a, if a, if a, if a book was going to make it in as scripture... It had to be authored by either an apostle himself or an eyewitness to the events. If you run through the Gospels, you're looking at, um, you know, Luke uh, got his information directly from Paul. Mark got his information directly from Peter. You got John who was there for the whole thing, saw it with his own eyes. He was right there. The second thing you're going to see is time of the writing of these books. That mattered, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, the, the most... Liberal estimates is that you're looking at 90 AD for the book of John being the latest book, right? So let's think about this. Anno Domini, year of the Lord, our our Lord, zero starts with Jesus being born, right? He dies when? How old is he? He's 33, right? So 90 minus 33, math whizzes? Oh, this is bad. Okay, math small group, okay? (laughs) We're going to help you with that. What is it? 57? Okay, bottom line is, Several decades in between the actual events happening and the writing of that book. More conservative estimates will put that at, at 60 A.D., 70 A.D., so it, it's hard. I mean, we're talking 2,000 years ago, but nobody says, even people that hate the Bible, 
it was past 90 AD. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Just for the book of John. The other ones definitely were earlier. Some as early as 50 AD. We're talking within the lifetime of eyewitnesses that were there. That's so key, right? Because if you start writing books of the Bible and saying, well, this is what Jesus did, and then he did this miracle, and he rose from the dead, and there's people still alive that were there when all that was going down, and you start distributing these books widely, somebody's going to go, uh, I was there. That didn't happen. I can take you to where Jesus is still laying. He's dead. He didn't heal any of these people like you're saying. And he, and he definitely didn't, didn't take a little boy's lunch and turn it into food for 5,000 people. This is a bunch of fluff, right? You've got people alive that can contend and say, this stuff is a lie. However, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, other Gnostic Gospels, other Gospels that were supposed scripture, you're talking 200 A.D., you're talking 300 A.D., way outside of the scope of time where there's any eyewitnesses available to refute anything that was put in there that could be untrue. Early church wanted only, uh, and I believe this was by God's sovereign hand, only books that could be confirmed by eyewitness and apostolic account. Okay? So, that's why the Gospel of Thomas didn't get in there. Not because it's got so much juicy stuff about Jesus and Mary Magdalene being married like Dan Brown would like you to believe. Okay? It's a bunch of hoopla. All right? <clears throat> so, um, another question will come up. Why is there so many translations, right? I'm preaching out of a New American Standard Bible, right? There's probably within this room even, you've probably got a New International Version. Somebody's probably rocking an NLT. You might have an ESV. Got a little bit of a more Reformed flavor, right? Um, some of you might have a message. There's a garbage can out there on the way. You can just drop that there. Um, amplified Bible. <laughs> it's our... <laughs> Dang it. Here's the thing. The Message Bible is great. If you just want to sit at home and just read, glory to God. Read that Message Bible, man, front to back. Hallelujah. Um, but that's not what you want to bring to church, and that's not what you want to study out of, in, in my humble opinion. Okay, so uh, why so many translations, though? Okay, so let's talk about that. Uh, first of all, like I said, this is not... Um, this is not something that works against the Bible, first of all. When you think about the fact that it was, the Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, that men literally gave their lives for its translation into uh, as many languages as it is today, which, I mean, there's very few languages in the world that at least parts of the Bible have not been translated into. The fact that it is the best-selling book throughout all of time, the fact that it has survived criticism from, for 2,000 years, right? I mean, the Bible has held up. And men have gave their lives for it to be translated. And all of this lends to its credibility as opposed to takes away from it. But why is it today you can go to a bookstore and find 15 different translations of the Bible? Well, you've got several different attempts and purposes in Bible translation. You have what are called word-for-word translations. And what the attempt is there is to take the do the best job possible at going from whatever the original language is into the language that you're going, that you're, that you're translating into, right? So say from Greek to English or from Hebrew to English. They're going to work hard to make sure that they're doing the best job they possibly can at word-for-word word translation. That's the kind of Bible that you want to study out of. That's the kind of Bible that you want to form doctrine off of, okay? Like the message translation, I think uh, things like the Amplified Bible, these, these are called paraphrase, right? They're, it's, they're not exerting effort into making sure necessarily that it's all the way accurate. They're just, they're taking some poetic license. They want to make sure that it, it kind of flows nice and, and there may be some things added or taken away. Um, 
It probably sounds like I do. I really have no problem with either one of those. Just not something that you want to study off of, not something that you want to build doctrine off of, okay? Uh, you want a good word-for-word -word translation. Like I said, I use the New American Standard Bible. I don't know why. I just don't, I, you know, there, there's ways and, and reasons that certain things work the way they do. New American Standard, for some reason, has not gained as much traction as other translations. I believe it is the most accurate word-for-word -word translation. I, I would say right neck and neck with that is the ESV. I don't mind the ESV. Um, NIV, King James, if you like some these and thous, you know, it's very good word-for-word -word translation. It really is. Um, but none of this is a detraction from the Bible itself or a reason for someone to say, well, how can I trust it? Uh, with a, a little bit of understanding about why there's different translations, it, it's, it's not an issue, okay? So that's why you have so many different options. Um, and we believe the Bible is authoritative. So we believe it's inspired, inerrant, and we believe it's authoritative. Primarily, we believe it's authoritative because it is inspired and it's inerrant, right? So these kind of build upon each other. Um, we do not believe the scriptures are a bunch of suggestions to be considered, but it is the commands of God to be obeyed and the promises of God that we can rejoice over, right? That's what the scriptures are. Not a bunch of suggestions to be considered, but commands of God to be obeyed, and, it, and it's the promises of God that we can rejoice over. So the Bible is authoritative. It, it carries weight. And when, you know, um, when the reformers were establishing some of this doctrine and, and the Protestant movement was birthing, um, the, the words sola scriptura was kind of used to describe this thought, scripture alone, that scripture has the highest authority. And um, we, However, we don't want to bleed over into what is an error, which is a slight distinction, which is solo scriptura. There are those men that thought the Bible was the only thing you ever needed to read, that it contained all knowledge you would need for all of life all the time. That's not true. The Bible's not going to tell you how to change the alternator on your car, okay? There's a Chilton's manual for that. Um, who knows what a Chilton's manual is? Okay, all right, I'm impressed. Um, Urban Hillbilly right here. Been in Chilton's manual a few times later, buddy. Um, right, so, and, and uh, it's not going to, you know, the Bible's not going to teach you how to, how to make the best Alfredo sauce on planet Earth. Right? You're not going to find instructions for that in the scriptures. There are other sources of knowledge. There are other sources of wisdom. Here's the deal. All of them are subject to the knowledge and the wisdom and the authority of the scriptures. No other source of wisdom or knowledge is going to come up and trump what the scriptures have to say. If anything attempts to put itself in contradiction to the scriptures, it loses. The scriptures are the metaphorical high court. They are the supreme court. They are... They are the highest authority that we have. There are other places that we can gain knowledge and wisdom. The scriptures are the highest. They trump everything else, okay? So we do affirm uh, sola scriptura, that scripture alone um, is the inspired word of God and that what we need to know about God and his wisdom, we can find in it. However, if you need to know how to do something uh, like work on your car or make a sweet recipe you're probably not going to find that in Lamentations. So, um, so we, believe it's the, we believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and we added also it is finished. And we, that won't take very long. 
Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read this. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Go check out those plagues. Not fun. Okay? Uh, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. God takes real seriously anybody coming along and acting like they're going to add to the inspired scriptures. He starts talking about, I'm going to take away their part in the tree of life. Run that through your systematic theology however you want to. Bottom line, it's a scripture and you've got to deal with it. I don't know what the heck really he's saying there, but I don't want to be a part of it. And so I'm not going to run up and talk to anybody about seeing angels or anything else or writing anything on anything, scribbling on a napkin, gold plates, or anything else, and talk about how this is extra scriptures. God just forgot to get them to you. God has sovereignly directed the scriptures throughout time so that we would have them. He is, he, it, part of it is miraculous. Part of it is supernatural. God has done what has been necessary. He's used man uh, in the process so that we would have the canon of scripture we have today, we would have his words, his thoughts, his motives, his intentions toward us. It is a great and precious gift to us. It is perhaps the greatest treasure God's given us. You gotta love the word, man. You should have a, a great affection for the word. This, it should not just be a book that sits on your back seat that gets grabbed from Sunday to Sunday. It should it should be deep to you, man. It should matter to you. It should, the words of the scripture are the very words of God to you. It's his love letter to you. It's, it's his commands to you. It's his promises to you. And they're beautiful. We believe the scriptures are from God, that they are perfect and authoritative, and that they are complete. This is what we believe about the Bible. This is what we believe about the scriptures here at Love City. We believe they tell one story from Genesis to Revelation. Unlike many stories, the Bible is completely true. But much like many other stories, every good story has a hero. And the hero of the scriptures is not you. It's King Jesus. And he made a way for us to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. That leads me to the news the point, the great message of all of the scriptures, and that is the gospel. And this is the gospel that God did make us, but we fell because of pride, because of our desire to be like God, and the earth was cursed, and now we are born into sin. We are sinners by nature and choice, and we all Romans 3 is clear. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are imperfect. None of us is perfect. And this is not the escape hatch that many of us try to make it into. The fact that none of us is perfect means, well, how could any of us be held accountable? It doesn't get anybody off the hook. It puts everybody on the hook. Every single person is in desperate need of the reconciling power of the gospel. Every single person person has fallen short. And the requirement for reconciliation with God, the requirement for fellowship with a perfect God is perfection. The scriptures call you, dear one, be perfect as I am perfect. 
This is the height of the bad news because all of us should begin to squirm when we realize what is needed to be in relationship with God is perfection. Who within the sound of my voice has made that requirement? I see no hands. We're all in the same boat. We're in deep trouble knowing that perfection is what is taken. And that's why Jesus had to come and be perfect. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. That's why he had to live the perfect life that none of us could ever pull off. And he did it. And that's why he had to be the one that would lay his life down and pay the price that all of us should have paid. He took the beating. He took the separation from God. He took the punishment that all of us deserved. He died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. That's the good news. And the good news continues. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. Sin, the back of sin was broken as Jesus finished his work on the cross. After showing himself to many witnesses, he ascends back into heaven where he's at the right hand of the Father now interceding on our behalf. And here's what the Bible says. Yes, you've sinned. Yes, you've fallen short. And contrary to popular belief, you can't do enough good to work it off. The Bible says very plainly, it is belief in the gospel. It is faith in the finished work of Christ that is what determines whether or not somebody's eternity will be spent with God or in hell. That's what it comes down to, faith. And nobody else is offering that kind of deal. Nobody else says, I'll do all the work. I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll do everything that must be done. You just believe and live in light of it. But this is what's offered from Jesus to you today. This is why we rejoice. This is why we're excited about the scriptures. This is, I still can't get over it. If you've gotten over it, then you don't get it. Because it'll blow your mind every single day. Grace is amazing. The song makes sense because grace is amazing. And amazing is not a good enough word really to describe grace, but it's one of the better ones we got. It, grace is awe-inspiring. It doesn't make sense that God would take your filth and your disgusting sin and all of your rebellion, he would let you give him that and trade you righteousness, joy, and peace and relationship with him. That doesn't make sense. Nothing else in your life works like that. Nothing else in your life is, is what seems to be justice disregarded and love and mercy poured out like that. Nowhere else is it found. But that is the gospel we preach. That is the great message of hope that we as Christians have to share in this world today. And that's why it's imperative that we are on mission. That's why it's imperative that we don't show up every single week and pat each other on the back and have a good little time of fellowship and go back to life as if this stuff is not real. Eternity hangs in the balance. And what will determine whether someone is with God forever or not is this perfect gospel. And that's why we must be messengers of it, not only with our lips, but with our lives. That's why we have to live lives so overtaken with the love of God. We must reflect the love of God that's been given to us with such passion that it opens the hearts of the people that are around us every single day, that we have opportunity to then open our mouths and declare the truth of this gospel. This is an all-encompassing truth. This is not something that we can just be a part of on the weekends. This is something that must consume every part of your heart and your thoughts, and your life. To know this truth is to be called to share this truth. To be called to share this truth is to be called to be all in with it. This is all-consuming. The gospel leaves no room 
for you to have any remnant of selfishness. It must become about the glory of God and the good of others. This is what the gospel does to a human heart. And so if you find yourself unexcited about that as I'm talking, I would, I would encourage you, I would implore you, I would beg you as we take communion together to spend time with the master and ask him to ignite again a spark in your heart and an excitement about the gospel and its truth. That he would stir in you again a love for others. If, if you're not stirred by the gospel, if, you're not, if you don't care whether or not others are saved, it's very possible that you're not yourself. There is a form of godliness that denies the power, and that has nothing to do with whether or not you do a bunch of stuff that people assume is the power of God. It has to do with whether or not the gospel grabs a hold of your heart every time you hear it. Does it ignite something in you? Is it hard for you not to be overcome with joy when you hear the fact that you don't have to go to hell, that you don't have to be held by chains of addiction and depression in this life because God has made a way that you can walk with him, that you can know him, that you can be with him in this life and forever. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we've been entrusted with.